1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? The royal princess. Oh dear. What a fiasco. We have to get our hands on these damning photographs of a certain royal person. The photos are in the safe deposit box of the Lloyds Bank. There can be no connection to us. Ah, makes us all look stupid. I've got a proposition for you, Terry. A bank. As in Rob. Can you see us taking on a bank? This is about getting into the deposit box of secret wealth. Because people won't report it. Hello, boys. What are you doing these days? Fashion's my game. Film work. That's nothing to be ashamed of. We're not bank robbers. Maybe that's why we could get away with it. So what's the verdict? We're bloody going for it. On the corner here's the bank, next door is the chicken inn, and at 189 Le Sac. We'll dig a tunnel in a safe deposit vault. They know what they're doing, these people, do they? No, absolutely. Professional criminals. All clear on the Western Front, guy. Over. No names, Eddie. Sorry, Dave. Over. Time to get paid for all our work. Let's make some money. Look at this. 47. Sounds like a good year to me. Oh, no. Where'd these come from? You better come clean. Tell us what this is really about. If you would like to give us an itemized list of... The whole point of having a safe deposit box is so that people like you don't know what's in it. You stole from me. I'm from friends of mine. To the invitation zone. Get my pictures back. Every customer satisfied. We have to find those villains before your honest colleagues do. You've opened Pandora's box, you dumb. You could get seriously nicked in. Peace and love. Too much of that, we'll both be out of a job. Haven't had this much excitement since the war. Hello. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and this time out, I am once again joined by my good friend, Trentus Magnus. Hello, hello, hello. How are you, Paul? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. I'm, I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever podcasted this early in the morning before. So this is a uh, we're breaking new ground here. I like this. Let's keep it going. Oh, uh, this is this is this is normal, normal ground for me because we do uh, listen to the prophets on Saturday mornings, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We start. Oh, wow. Because you got to keep in mind, we're, we're uh, also working with somebody on that show who is in England who is, I believe, six hours ahead of us. So if we're 6 a.m., he's around noon. It might be five hours. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we can't, t we can't l sync up our time much better than that in order to do a regular show. If it was like, one, you know, once in a blue moon, you know, you could, you could say, okay, somebody's got to, you know, change their schedule a little bit. But I am an early riser by, uh, you know, whether I like it or not. So it works out okay for me anyway. So early early recording is good with me. Sometimes late recording, I feel like I'm going to go to sleep, and I never want to do that on an actual show, which I am surprised to know that people have done that. In fact, people have done it as they were speaking to me. So <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I'm just going to take the fifth on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All that said, uh, I got to say, when you recommend a movie – you recommend things that I would not necessarily have thought about doing. And just to finish the thought, I always end up glad that you recommended whatever you did because it gives me a chance to do something I wouldn't have thought of doing otherwise. And once again, you've lived up to that, that level of uh, expectation uh, as we are covering today the bank job from, is it 2011? Uh, um, no, 2000, 2008, excuse me. 2008, yeah. Uh, you and know I've what, actually you know, got you know a little what? bit of story to, to that, yeah. So. so why don't we go there? Um, yeah, uh, basically what happened was um, this was the summer of 2008, and for those of you who don't remember, that was a really busy summer for movies. You had Iron Man, you had The Incredible Hulk, you had The Dark Knight. That's the one everybody remembers. You had uh, Star Wars, Clone Wars, the animated film. Uh, there were uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, whether you love it or hate it, that also came out that summer. I mean, that was a big, big summer. And I, I kind of regard 2008 in a lot of ways as um, kind of like the beginning of the end of my single years. I still had a few more, more to go, but like this was I, – I, I look back at it now, and I think this was like my last big hurrah with – uh, you know how it is like you're 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 going out with your boys and you're having fun. You're getting steak every Friday night, and then you go see whatever's playing at the at, at the movies, and life is great, right? The single years, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> unbeknownst to me, the single years were starting were starting to wind down, and so we had gone to see I think just about every major release that came out that summer. Um, Jumper was another movie that came out that summer that I kind of got a soft spot for. And so I get a text uh, from a friend of mine, this guy that I've known since we were in high school together. He's like, hey, we're going to go see the bank job. Are you in or out? Well, I know there's going to be steak or pizza or dinner of some kind, and I know it's going to be awesome. So it's almost like from the jump, like you had me at hello, right? <laughs> um, but then I know that we're going to see a movie. Too. It's like bank job, the bank job. 
Okay, I must have been in the bathroom or something when that one was announced. And so, but hey, whatever, you know, I'm in. And I don't know if this would work for every single movie that comes down the pipeline, but I'm a firm believer in the, at least in the possibility that sometimes the best way to go into a movie is just to go in. You don't really know anything about it. You don't have a whole lot of expectations for it. You don't even really know what it is or, or, or anything like that. You know, I mean, you can kind of suggest maybe you can derive a few things based upon the title, you know, the bank job. OK, so there's something in there about a bank. And there are let's face it, there are some movies out there that are going to wear their premise on the sleeve uh, on their sleeve. Nobody ever hears the title of this other movie and and think to themselves, Gee, I wonder what Snakes on a Plane is about. You know, like no one ever says that. But in the main, you know, if there's a way to go into a movie and almost 100% blind, there are times when that really can pay off dividends for you because you it's like literally everything that you're seeing is a complete surprise. And with a movie like this, I really hope that everyone listening has seen the movie. Uh, that would whatever whatever my opinion counts for, which I'm sure is zero. But if if I could have my druthers, I would actually hope that everyone listening, you've seen the movie and we're not ruining anything for you, because I regard this as being just this is not going to be the godfather. All right. But what is, you know, but it's like at the same time, you know, there are just so few cinematic treats that come along. This is definitely one of them, and I would say protect yourself against too much information as much as you can. So anyway, so that's kind of a long answer for you, but there you have it. And I would say if you are inclined to respect Trentus's opinion and you are inclined to follow his suggestion, if that was the case, pause the podcast now, get the movie. I believe it is available streaming on Showtime, I think. Uh, right now, but uh, I'm not 100% certain about that. And by the time this uh, episode actually is posted, that could be in a totally different situation because I do have quite a lead time on my show right now. Uh, but I would suggest that you, you know, if you're inclined to see it, I would say it is a, uh, if nothing else, it is an interesting viewing experience. And we'll talk more about what actually goes on in the movie as we go on. And there will be some spoilers. Uh, it's not the... Uh, you know, the the movie that, that, you know, that's got this twist ending that you say, oh, my God, I can't believe that's the way this worked out. Oh, look at all the clues going along. It's not that. But there are twists and turns along the way with the way the story goes. And you may be more interested in just experiencing them yourself, because I do agree with the uh, perspective that I would rather go into movies clean when I can. On the other hand, you may be listening to this and saying, I have no idea what this movie is. I don't know if I want to see it. And I'm going to listen to these two guys pontificate about it. And if I'm interested in watching it when we're done, then I will. So, you know, if that's your, if that's your situation, then by all means, you know, do whatever you're most comfortable with. Uh, but it, but if, if you're inclined to do the first, you may want to pause it right here and let it go, because I'm about to give a synopsis of the movie. And the synopsis, as pretty much always, comes from Wikipedia. 
And just by way of background, this movie came out, as we said, in 2008. It stars uh, Jason Statham. He's really the only significant star. There's a lot of actors in here, and there's some of them who are guys where you'd look at and say, oh, I recognize that guy, but I don't know from where. Uh, but I think, I don't think there's any other, there, there certainly aren't any other big names in this. Uh, the running time is 112 minutes, and it is directed by Roger Donaldson. The story is that the British Secret Services, MI5, have taken interest in a safety deposit box that is located in a Lloyds Bank branch on the corner of Baker Street and Marleybone Road. It belongs to a black militant gangster, Michael X, and contains compromising photos of Princess Margaret, which he is keeping as insurance to keep the British authorities off his back. Martine Love, an ex-model who is romantically involved with MI5 agent Tim Everett, is caught at Heathrow Airport smuggling drugs into the country, and to avoid going to jail, she makes a deal with the authorities whereby she agrees to retrieve the photos. Martine approaches her friend Terry, a struggling East London car salesman with criminal contacts, and tells him that if he can assemble a gang to help her rob the bank, he will be richly rewarded, though she does not tell him about the photos in the deposit box. Terry recruits a small team, including one of his own workers, Eddie, Dave, Kevin, Bombus, and Guy Singer. While scouting the bank, Dave runs into local gangster Lou Vogel, for whom he has made several pornographic films. The gang rents a leather goods shop near the bank and tunnels into the vault. They loot the safety deposit boxes, but Terry becomes suspicious when Martine seems to display intense interest in one box. The police are alerted to the robbery by a ham radio operator who overhears the gang's walkie-talkie communications, but by the time they locate the bank, the gang has already gotten away. The robbery rattles many important underworld figures who had used the bank, including Lou Vogel, who kept a ledger of police payoffs inside. He notifies a furious Michael X in Trinidad, who correctly suspects Gail Benson, the lover of his associate, Hakim Jamal, of spying for MI5 and subsequently murders her. Vogel decides that Dave's presence outside that particular bank was not a coincidence and has him kidnapped and tortured for information. Dave gives in, and Lou has Gerald Pike and Nick Burton, two corrupt policemen working on his payroll, kidnap Eddie at Terry's garage. Meanwhile, Terry discovers explicit photographs of important government officials among their loot and uses them to secure passports and new identities for the gang. Vogel's men, Vogel's men track down and murder Bombus and Guy Singer. Eddie refuses to cooperate with Vogel, who has... Gerald execute Dave and threatens to kill Eddie unless Terry delivers the ledger to him. Terry agrees to meet up with Vogel at Paddington Station to exchange the ledger for Eddie. He arranges for the meeting to happen at the same time as he will be picking up the new passports. Meanwhile, Terry sends Kevin to honest cop Roy Given with a page torn from the ledger. Vogel becomes spooked and tries to flee, but Terry attacks and beat, beats him, only to be arrested by the police. However, Given has Terry released and uses the information he supplied to arrest Lou, Gerald, and Nick. In Trinidad, Michael X is arrested as well. Eddie inherits Terry's car dealership, while Kevin and Martine prepare to begin new lives with their share of the money. Terry and his family leave England and enjoy a carefree life on a boat in a sunny location. And that's the end of the story. And one of the things that, that actually... Uh, surprised me going into this is because i expected it to be 
as it is, a caper movie. And with the name The Bank Job, I think, you know, that's a fair <laughs> summation as to what you should expect. But Agreed. usually, to my experience, and this, you know, it's sometimes subverting expectations is a good thing. Uh, to my experience, usually the bank job in a caper movie is 99.9% of the film, and then the other 0.01% is, you know, where they show you, oh, this is what happened to them afterwards. In this particular movie, which is, you know, a little shy of two hours, uh, the bank, actual bank caper is completed just slightly over halfway through the movie. So you still have right. about half the movie to go into what's going to happen from there. Uh, so, again, you know, like I said, there was a little subversion of, of expectations for me. And I, I, I like that when it's done well, and I thought it was done fairly well here. Uh, I had been 100% unfamiliar with this movie, to give my background on it, until you suggested it. Uh, and while I am mildly familiar with Jason Statham, I can't say I followed his career to speak of. Uh, you know, I know who he is and I know what his reputation is, but I, I, you know, I saw the expendables, but I didn't really, honestly, it wasn't for me. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I really wasn't all that familiar with him on screen. Uh, I do find from watching this movie and, and since, I, since I saw this, I saw the Meg. So the other movie I've seen of his that I can cite, uh, I find him to be a, somewhat charismatic performer and on you know when he's on screen he does draw your eyes to him uh, and he doesn't have traditional uh leading man looks because he's you know balding and uh so he appears to be somewhat short uh, mm -hmm. but just the same he does have kind of a magnetic personality and i think that overcomes some acting shortcomings that he may have uh you know again to the point where you kind of want to like him so therefore, you're almost filling in the blanks on his background story or his emotions or whatever. And it just makes it easier to enjoy his performance. Uh, if he was a less a less charismatic actor, I think he would fall short in this role. Uh, but he's you know, he's not necessarily a good guy. Uh, you know, he's he's an adulterer. He's a, a thief. He's got mob ties. Uh, but, you know, he is shown to be loyal to his men and he's charismatic. So you, 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 you're drawn to him and you root for him. Uh, and then, you know, at the end, when he's successful, you're happy for him. Right. Uh, I tend to agree with all of that. And the like literally the only reason that I'm not going to call this movie like the definitive Jason Statham movie is the lack of a car chase. Involving him. If it wasn't for that, I would actually it, it would be my great pleasure to tell you, oh, yeah, like the, like if you only see one Jason Statham movie, it should be this one. You know, this is I, I've seen them in, in a wide variety of things, but this I, I think this kind of typifies the the sort of character that he seems to gravitate towards playing uh, the kind of morally murky uh, type uh, he's got more flaws perhaps than than he does virtues and this is this, this is a character that like audiences are they're probably apt to sympathize with not so much relate to you know i mean there's really nothing in my life that lines up with with anything that happens in this movie and by the way 
one of the things that I don't think that we've really emphasized up to this point is we don't really know to what degree, but this is based on a true story. This uh, a robbery, a, a bank robbery like this really did happen. And it is known that there are uh, pictures of Princess Margaret, like sex pictures of Princess Margaret. She's getting it on with a London gangster. Those are all known to exist. And so we just by virtue of the fact that a D notice was issued on this story at the time that the news was breaking, there's there's really not a whole lot of information about this case that's been made public. And so what the filmmakers have done is basically they've based on the information that is available, they've extrapolated a movie from that. So it's this is one of in a weird kind of way, I would actually kind of compare this to Oliver Stone's JFK from the standpoint that it's kind of hard to know where the movie begins and the facts end and vice versa. So this is this is a movie that if you choose to watch it, my personal recommendation would be just turn off your brain. Forget about based on true, true events or anything like that. Just enjoy this thing as a fun caper movie that has a, an ending point far beyond the uh, end point for most caper films. There's a lot of complications that happen after the successful execution of the caper. And for me, that's really like the franchise of what this movie's really supposed to be all about. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's um, it's it's funny when it needs to be funny. It's kind of sinister when it needs to be sinister. It, it really is a, just a fun little roller coaster ride. And one of the things that when I watched this uh, a couple of nights ago, I I honestly don't know how many times I've seen this film. I would estimate maybe five or six times at the most somehow having seen this movie five or six times over the last 12 years i missed the little it's it's a blink and you miss it sort of moment but there is a cameo appearance and i think it's even a non-speaking role but a cameo appearance by an actor a background sort I'm, of I'm, you know what I, i'm gonna i'm gonna totally give away I, I know you're trying to be uh to limit what you're saying but i'm gonna give it away so if anybody doesn't want to know because they want to be surprised actually i think if you don't know in advance you won't see it uh so i wouldn't even suggest that you skip it uh following the bank job a bank guard walks into the following the actual job not the movie uh a guard walks into the vault and it's mick jagger yeah and that was one <laughs> oh, there's a, there's another one that I missed. Yeah, no, there there there's an actor, and he's he's basically a glorified extra. But if you're paying attention at that big dinner scene with, I don't know what they would be called in uh, London, but here they're basically the Black Panthers, more or less. Mm -hmm. There's somebody who's sitting next to uh, Michael X, who bears an uncanny resemblance to 1970 era John Lennon. And I thought, how did I never notice this before? But I think we are supposed to infer that person sitting at the table is John Lennon, you know. And um, I, for whatever reason, that, that just the penny never dropped 
from me on that before, but did you pick up on that uh, when you, know you were what? watching I, it? I did not pick up on it during the dinner sequence, but when uh, Terry is going through the photos in the vault, I saw what appeared to be a photo of John Lennon with, I guess, Princess Margaret or whoever. They don't, they don't even show it, and it's not a uh, salacious picture. It's just a photo. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it, it's clearly appeared to be John Lennon to me, and that was the connection I made. I didn't even notice during the dinner sequence. Uh, but that's, I mean, John Lennon was, you know, he was a little radical sometimes. So it wouldn't shock me if he was involved in something along this, you know, along these lines. Not necessarily in a criminal way, but more out of curiosity and that kind of thing. I don't necessarily think he would have bad intentions, but that might just be my own prejudices going you know in his favor going uh you know at work there so i wouldn't be surprised if they had information uh about john lennon you know somehow being involved with you know these these radicals and and being you know photographed with them or or you know at, at events with them but uh just to take a little further what you were mentioning earlier i have become very very cynical uh more so in the last say 10 years than previously in my life about mm-hmm. movies that purport to be based on a true story. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I've come more to the conclusion that they are showing whatever the filmmakers wanted to show as opposed to necessarily reality. Right. Uh, and some, sometimes the filmmakers want to show reality and, 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 and they do their best to do so. I'm not trying to uh, damn everyone who does this, but I think, you know, somebody like say Oliver Stone, you mentioned JFK. I think he had an agenda or I th- and, and I think this is frequent in a lot of his movies, not just JFK. I, I think he has an agenda that he's pushing forward with his, his narratives, and he will frame the story or mold the story to fit that agenda. And I think to varying degrees, that's often the case with a lot of filmmakers, uh, whether intentional or otherwise. And then you top that off with a lot of these biographical movies or movies based on true stories have scenes where there will be there will be conversations going on that could not possibly have been documented and therefore it is always going to be up to the imagination of the screenwriter uh, or the director to kind of fill in that blank and and surmise what that conversation entailed and what was said and i think whether consciously or unconsciously if they do have some sort of an agenda uh, they're going to further that agenda with the way they fill in the blanks. So I've come to the conclusion, it's my long-winded way of saying, uh, that I I no longer accept any biographical movie as being factual. Well, and and that's fair. I can understand that. Uh, My way of rationalizing that is that we... (laughs) A filmmaker is sometimes kind of caught in this weird sort of catch-22 where there's actually a really good example of what I'm, of what I want to say here. There, there was a movie. It's a, <clears throat> it's a Ted. Uh, I was about to say Ted Cruz. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> uh, Ted Bundy um, a bio movie. It was called uh, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile from uh, 2019, starring uh, Zac Efron as Ted Bundy. And the the kind of standout element of, of this movie is that the filmmakers went in basically with a pledge, all right? 
everything that we're going to put in this movie is going to have some kind of substantiation behind it. No matter what you're seeing, no matter how far-fetched some of this may appear to be, everything is going to have at least one source behind it. And in some cases, you don't even – I mean, you can just work off of video. We have video of some of these things. And so the end result of this is for every one new piece of information that comes up in this movie that I had never heard before, there are – five or six or seven other things that we've got this stuff on video, you know, and it's like, there's really not a whole lot of new stuff going on there. And so it's, it, it's a sword that kind of cuts two different ways where you're either telling the audience a bunch of stuff that they already know on the one hand, or on the other hand, you're basically, I, I don't want to go so far as to say this is libel or slander or anything like that, but I mean, you really are speaking out of turn on things that you don't know about. You weren't there for. You cannot speak to authoritatively. And so it's uh, the way. So w when it comes to a movie like this, take this movie with as many grains of salt as you see fit. But at least for me as an American, one of the things that is kind of a sort of a cornerstone of American life is this concept of freedom of the press. I mean, there are there are some circumstances, but there are really very few circumstances where some sort of government agency can tell the the free press in the United States, you guys need to button down on this story. From here on in, this is a non-issue. You're going to shut up and move along. Whereas in the UK, they can issue what's known as a D notice, and I had never heard of that before. So one of the first things I did after seeing this movie was I Googled it, you know, and come to find out this is like this is a real thing. And people, if we have I don't know if you have a big audience in the UK or not, perhaps those people are laughing at me now, but I'd never heard of that before. And so this was in that in that way, it was actually a kind of an eye opening kind of educational sort of experience for me. So I at least wanted to throw that out there and just see what comes back to me. Yeah. And, you know, just to, as a. To, to further the, the point uh, as far as what I was saying, uh, you know, I although I am cynical as to the uh, authoritativeness of any purportedly true story that comes out, I don't necessarily question the integrity and intentions of every filmmaker. I, again, mm -hmm. like I said, I think some of them have agendas uh, and some of them, their agenda is to try and tell the story as much as they can. Uh, as truthful as they can and you know whether or not they're successful uh, I can never know that's the bottom line is I can never know if they're successful in telling you know the true story because I wasn't there and neither were they so it is their attempt to tell us what happened uh, and whether or not it's accurate you know you can leave you can you can leave to your own imagination I guess you know I, I basically you know, go with the thought of, you know, history is written by the winners, mm -hmm. uh, you know, saying that even things that are presented in history books can be told with a specific perspective and point of view. And I don't want to take this any further than to say we see it all the time in politics now where things are presented with a particular perspective uh, and, and can be skewed in certain ways. So. Based on that alone, you know, if you don't question the accuracy of things that are being told to you as being truthful, 
you're probably being a little Pollyanna in how you look at things, in my opinion. I must agree with you. Yes. And um, so and, one... and that that's to take that. I'm sorry to keep it throat, but just to, I don't want to beat the point to death, but just. I think, you know, we've hit on that and, you know, how much this movie has reality and how much it doesn't. And, and I think we can leave that point for the most part because, you know, we're talking about a movie here. We're not talking about the actual facts and what happened in this job, unless you have any other specific, uh, you know, thoughts on that. Um, not not directly, no. Uh, but I, I did want to make mention of uh, one particular actor and perhaps one particular character or real life person. I don't know, but there was an actor, uh, Richard Lint, uh, Lintern. He plays a person, however you want to quantify that real or fictional called Tim Everett. Now my lack of familiarity with the UK and the way that things are done over there does obviously that does not extend to James Bond. And he was sort of this, at least in the movie, he's kind of played as, as this sort of debonair James Bond sort of figure up mm -hmm. to a point. And then once you get beyond that point, you start seeing what the real dark side of that character and what he represents, what that stuff is really all about. And that, to me, is one of the, the uh, successes of this movie is that. In a weird kind of way, I would almost want to compare it, to, in terms of genre, I would almost want to compare it to film noir from the standpoint that there really are no heroes in this film. There are very – and there is one. Roy Given is definitely one of the characters in this movie that's completely, as far as what's presented on screen, completely on the up and up. But the protagonist – or protagonists of uh, of the movie are themselves bank thieves, and what and what they get up against are um, violent radicals. They get up against um, certain elements of uh, the the uh, mob in London of that time. They get up against uh, uh, dirty uh, dirty police officers, and it, it one of the things that really works for me about this movie is that. It doesn't have this kind of simplistic good guy, bad guy thing going for it. It's really one agent of darkness up against a few other agents of darkness. And so it kind of becomes a question of, well, who's going to win? And in the end, basically law and order ends up winning. Kind of. And as, as presented in the movie, certainly that's true. Yes. Yeah. As it is in the movie. Yeah. And it. it that I don't think that sort of kind of moral ambiguity would necessarily I, I don't need to see that in every single movie that comes that comes down the pipeline. Right. But having said that, I do think the combination of that in in this film is successful. I do think that actually enhances the my enjoyment of it, that it's. It's tempting to think of MI5 as they're presented in the movie. As, oh, they're the good guys. They're on the side of the angels. And no, they're on the side of the crown. And if they have to, if they have to put some bullets into some people to protect the crown's interests, that's what they're going to do. And I don't know. It's just I, I can't even explain really why it is that I that I like that aspect of the movie. But I do like it. And I always wanted to open that up to you. The idea that, you know, this isn't cops and robbers. This is 
robbers and robbers? Like, how, how did that element of the movie work for you? Yeah, well, I, I felt, you know, we, we go into, you know, what's reality and what's not. And, you know, we don't know how this all unfolded in real life. But I think to show that there is at least a potential for corruption on every side of things, uh, including the guys who we would put as, you know, in finger quotes, the good guys. Mm-hmm. I think that is more uh, more realistic. It's a more realistic view. It is, you know, so, you know, to use the word again, a little bit cynical. Uh, but I think, you know, there there is a reason to think that way. Uh, whereas, you know, to just say, oh, these are clearly the good guys and these are clearly the bad guys, I think is, you know. I used the word before, but Pollyanna, I think there is a little bit of that going on there. Uh, you know, people have their own agendas. Uh, and usually people's agendas, the, the most significant agenda people have is what benefits me. Uh, so, you know, people are going to act in that way. And, you know, that includes government officials. So you got to, you know, you have to consider that when you're judging the reality of what we watch. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of like, I think this movie, uh, for better or worse, again, you know, the, the, the level of reality, uh, who knows, but it definitely does a job of presenting the dark side of this kind of thing. You know, I think often uh, when, when you have uh, the caper movies, and again, we, you know, we mentioned the Oceans movies before, they glamorize it. They show it as being very slick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this is showing the underbelly of it. The movie of late that I would or fairly recent vintage that I would compare this most to in tone, uh, if you've seen it, is Uncut Gems. Heard of it, never saw it, been interested in it, though. I think, you know, based upon viewing this movie, I think you would probably be interested in seeing that and, and probably probably would like it. I I. I, I don't like to speak definitively as far as that goes because I've been wrong before. Uh, but I, I, I think you'd probably like it if you saw it. So I would recommend that to you. Uh, it is definitely, you know, it, it, it's got the caper aspect of it. And it's a uh, it's a somewhat dark take on things. OK. So. All right. You know, speaking of the caper aspect of, uh, of this movie, I I don't know how much you want to dwell on uh, on this aspect of it because we all have our own preferences, I suppose. But one of the things that when you watch a caper movie, I don't know about you, but it's like this entire movie is basically premised on the idea that this person or these group of people, they can somehow gain access to this presumably secure building, rob everybody blind, and then escape and get away with it using the most ridiculous, idiotic, contrived, Maxwell smart kind of just stupid plan that you've ever heard of. Whereas here in the bank job, the the methods that they use to achieve their ends uh, look, I am. I don't know anything about robbing banks or tunneling or anything like that. But the the methods that are used in this movie, they have that germ of plausibility to it. You know what? This or something like it probably would work. And the thing is, no one 
I don't know that most people would even be on the lookout for it, you know, just because we live in a world that is perpetually under construction. You don't necessarily pay attention to every single construction crew that you see or uh, perhaps uh, construction workers going in and out of a building. You don't. It's like you see it, but it doesn't really register with you. How do you know they're not in there robbing somebody blind? And that I don't know why, but for some reason, every time I get to that part of the movie, it's just uh, rubbing my hands together. Oh, boy, this is my favorite part. And and it's just like the logistics that they present in the movie. It's it, it has that air of plausibility to it, you know, and I don't know if you got into that as much, but that was one of the the uh, parts of the movie that I really enjoyed. And um, not it is just- something that I've taken note of, you know, that that. All these things that we see as just kind of like everyday occurrences, you know, like you said, construction work or whatever. And we just assume there's no sinister side to it. Uh, that is, you know, I, I think a, a conscious effort to just say, I, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to see the dark underbelly to these things. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's because if. You don't want to be one of these people who everywhere you turn, you're seeing a conspiracy. Uh, yeah, speaking of Oliver Stone, yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. Like you said, every construction crew, every uh, you know little side thing that you see going on in the street could be something you know that's that's a little bit more sinister than what you think. But I really don't want to go there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Uh, the, um, so, but 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 seeing it in a movie perspective, I think there's there's something to be said for that because because especially for somebody like me who doesn't see a conspiracy around every corner, seeing it in a movie you, you know gives me that aha moment. Oh look at that! I would have never thought of that. You know? Yeah. No, I I I get that. The um, but there was time though when I completely turned a blind eye to it. I don't know if you want to hear this story or not, but I'm telling it anyway because this is America, damn it. Uh, (laughs) What happened was the very first job that I ever got anywhere, ever, was – it was at a a, a chain of supermarkets called Albertsons and fairly conventional teenager job. I I was basically a bagger in this joint, right? So customer checks out. I sack all of their stuff. And back in those days, sackers would carry the stuff out to the customer's car, get everything loaded up nice and tidy for them, and go on their way, right? Well, it was just another day at work, and I keep in mind, I mean, I was kind of – I had sort of an attitude problem when I was a kid, right? It's gotten a lot better, but back in those days, very poor, very poor anger management skills. So walking along and I was chatting up the customer and just some guy runs right into me. He was standing at the uh, at the courtesy booth doing God knows what. And guy just runs right into me. Right. And, you know, he's looking at me. I'm looking right back at him. I'm like, what, you got something you want to say? And uh, he just he just gives me this look like I would love to just knock your block off right now, but I can't. So and I was like, yeah, okay, we're good. So just. Take the customer out the door. Totally forgot about it, right? I'm getting the customer's stuff all loaded up in her car. At the very moment, police cars just zoom out of nowhere, 
and you have these cops. They ninja kick their doors open. They have their guns drawn, and they run into the store, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go back in there right now. And then come to find out the guy that I ran into at the courtesy booth and mouthed off to, he had a gun in his pocket. He was in the process of robbing the courtesy booth, and you've seen it on TV, right, where you keep the gun in your pocket, but you're pointing, you're, you're, you're pointing the gun at the person. Yeah, I always thought that was a fake cliche. Well, I, <laughs> until that moment, I did too, and so I didn't know about it. I looked at the security camera footage later on, and – Dude actually pointed the gun at me at one point. So when I so when I thought, oh, he wants oh, to knock my block off. No, he wanted to blow my head off. And so uh, I had no idea. So sometimes wow. it's not even a conspiracy. Sometimes it's happening like literally right in front of you and you don't even know. And so, yeah, not very much fun. And uh, I made a solemn promise to myself. Don't talk trash to people when you're at work anymore. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, I I get what you're saying, <laughs> and you know that's something you know you, you I I think there's probably more people with guns out there than we realize. Yes. Uh, just to say it as a general statement, and I don't say that as a judgment, pro or con as far as gun control and that kind of thing, because I'm really not interested in making any statement right now. Me either. Uh, but I would say. Uh, when you when you have anger management moments, keep that in mind, though, that more people have weapons than you realize. And just to get that one second of satisfaction to tell somebody off probably isn't worth risking your life. I've kind of come to that realization over the years. Yes. So, you know, that that's our public service announcement for today. Yeah. Don't follow in my footsteps. Don't follow my example on that, guys. Just stay out of the way. Yeah. So um, now one of the other kind of. Um, one of the things that I think this movie did extremely well was casting out the core members of Terry's gang. One of the problems that I think you have whenever you have like a large cast where everyone has a kind of significant speaking part is eventually the characters just sort of run together after a while. And you kind of mix this person up with that person and who said what, who did what to whom, what are their names even, you know? And honestly, with the names, I am kind of lost. I know there's an Eddie, there's a Dave, there's a Martine, there's there's a Terry. But I, I, I would be hard-pressed to name every single member of the gang's name. But they all talk so differently from each other. They all look so different from each other. The actors, um, they're all – they've all kind of have their own sort of unique charisma. They all have their own sort of unique screen presence. You're not mixing anybody up with anybody else, and it's one of those things that it's easy to appreciate, but I can only imagine the amount of effort that has to go into this when you're the casting director and you're having to figure out, well, number one, who can do the job, and then number two, who can do the job while looking different from everybody else. So that's one of the things I at least wanted to shine a little bit of a light on here before we, before we move on how just visually yeah. distinctive everyone was. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think they did a good job on that. The guy who stood out the, to, the most to me, and it's more because of his storyline, was Dave, who is the, I was going to say wannabe porn star, but he actually is a porn star. Yes, <laughs> yes he is. Uh, but but he's, he's, you know, he's kind of goofy and, and dopey, and he stands out for that. Uh, but then he also has a very dark 
sequence at, towards the end. Uh, so he's he's the, the the one member of the gang that stood out to me. And then there is, uh, let me see if I can get what the guy's name is because I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, is it Lou Vogel? Yes, I think. He just has this scumbag sort of look to him, doesn't he? No, but he's not a member of the gang, right? No, he's, no, he's not. He's no. basically the gangster no, bookie. There was the member of the gang that stood out to me, and now all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on it. Let me just... Oh, yeah, it was uh, Guy Singer. Yes. And he's he's a, he's a guy who I kept seeing on the screen, and he is more definitely distinctive in his look. Uh, but he's a guy I kept seeing on the screen and thinking to myself, I've seen this guy before. I know I've seen this guy before. And when I talked about that earlier, uh, that's he's he's who I was thinking of. Uh, just somebody who, who stood out to me as, you know, recognizable, but I didn't know from where. And what I kept putting him in my mind, he looks just like, but apparently is not because the movies are 20 years apart or so. Uh, he looks like the gang leader from another caper film, A Fish Called Wanda. Uh, <laughs> and I don't, I, you know, it, there's, there's just the, the one guy there who, who looks like him, but it's not him. Uh, it ends up, uh, I guess, the most significant thing I remember this actor from was Game of Thrones, where he played Samuel Tarly's father. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Game of Thrones and how closely you've watched that. Uh, but that's the part that he played. But he was just one of these guys who, whenever he was on the screen, and he definitely looked older because he was a little bit uh, looked different because he was a little older than the other members of the gang, uh, and he was more distinguished looking. Yes, in my mind. So he stood out for that reason, and I think he's a good example of what you were saying, where they needed to cast people who, when they were on the screen, you wouldn't just think in your mind, okay, it's just another gang member. You'd at least make a connection. Okay. I've seen this guy before because they stand out against each other. Agreed. And, you know, he's been around, he's done quite a few movies. I mean, I think there is a bank manager that Magneto attacks in X-Men first class. He wrenches a, a filling out of his mouth. Yes. That he was that same guy. So there's, I think a lot of your listeners have probably seen that movie. So there's one right there. But another one, uh, you actually mentioned Lou Vogel, mistakenly apparently, but whatever. You still mentioned uh, <laughs> Lou Vogel, and that was mm -hmm. another character. He's one of those love-to-hate type characters where it's like you really can't wait for the guy to see to, to finally get his comeuppance because you know he's going to, right? And the, the thing about it that really turned me against this guy, like from the start, it you know, uh, other things in the movie obviously would have done it. Don't get me wrong, like murder. I mean, it's kind of hard to come back from that one. But from the start, you know, he was – basically what he does is, among other things, he bribes police officers. And it's a crucial plot point for the film that his secret ledger of payouts to this, to this dirty officer, to that dirty officer, and all these other things – that's ultimately how he ends up getting nabbed by by the law himself. And it's like part of me thinks, you know what, dude, if you're dumb enough to put something like that in writing, you kind of deserve whatever you get. And so yeah. and then from there, of course, we find out how much he really does deserve to get arrested. And so 
you have other reasons to root against him, but still, it's just it, that was the that was like his introduction. That was the moment I turned against him. It's like, oh, I can't wait for him to get his. <laughs> but on the other hand, when you think about it, yeah, I think we all have an inherent uh, trust of safe deposit boxes. You put something in a safe deposit box, it's safe. Nobody's getting at this. And his keeping that ledger was an act of self-preservation, thinking it's safe there. No one else can see this but me, but I have it in case I ever need to show to protect myself who I, you know, who I gave the money to. And it's almost a thought, I think, of being a rat beforehand. You know, if, if, if it comes down to it, I'll turn in these other guys uh, and I ha- and I have the ledger to prove who I paid to. Right. No, that's so a fair I, point. I think I think that's the thought process of his character. And because of that, in that that trust we have of safe deposit boxes, I don't know if I would characterize it as stupid to have kept it in there. Uh, I, you know, it turns out it was misplaced trust, but it was a, there was a logical thought process that went into it. No, that's fair enough. I, I, I could understand that. It's just, I guess, I mean, if, if it helps, the reference point that I'm speaking from is somebody that has, except for that one thing, I don't have a criminal record. I don't really interact with, you know, uh, members of the shady underworld or anything like that. So, you know, whenever I log payments for this, that or the other thing, I'm logging payments that I make to uh, for my cell phone account. You know, <laughs> And anyway, but, yeah, no, you do raise a good point that things like that, I guess, in that world, that really could be life insurance. So, no, that's a that's perfectly fair. So. So, you know, I, I do come back to. Jason Statham and his his character just, you know, not being somebody who I would respect in real life just because of what, you know, what he does and how he carries himself a little bit. Uh, and mainly because the, the whole cheating on his wife and then just expecting her loyalty and that kind of thing. Uh, and yet, like I said, I do find myself rooting for him as the movie goes on. And, and, and I kind of have to like acclimate myself to that. That's actually one of the things that I think in the hands of a, of a lesser actor, I can't speak for anyone else, but that normally would have prejudiced me uh, against the character. Again, I can tell you more about this off mic, but Hey, summer 2001. But um, the, the thing about it that ultimately kind of tips the scales a bit more in his favor for me is well i i guess number one it's jason statham uh but number two the the real and sincere concern that he that he exhibits for his family for their safety for their well-being you know this is this he's not a plastic banana good time rock and roller he really does want to be on the lookout for the big score where everybody gets to retire and mm-hmm. it's that that's not a lifestyle that I respect. That's not a lifestyle that I want to have, obviously, anything to do with. But I can at least understand the idea that it's like Selena Kyle says in The Dark Knight Rises, that once you do what you have to do, they won't let you do what you want to do. 
And this is a guy who's not being allowed to do what he really wants to do. And so he's I get the I'm extrapolating maybe a nobility to his character that may not exist. But he's a guy who basically commits all sorts of crimes simply because he got a rap pretty early on. And once once you have it, it follows you everywhere for the rest of your life. And so, I mean, it does kind of raise some interpretive difficulties, like why would somebody marry a man like that and everything? But it's like to me, that kind of goes beyond the scope of the movie based on what we see in the movie. He's a guy who's basically been on a string of bad luck his entire life. He saw a way to to uh, score one for his family. He took it. It blew up in his face in a way that he never could have ever uh, anticipated. And he did the best damage control he possibly could. And he, at the end of the day, when you think about it as a father, you've got really two responsibilities. Like there are two things you, you cannot afford to mess up. Number one, you have to position your children to live without you. And number two, you have to live long enough so that they can live without you. And he was trying to do both of those things, you know, raise his family and not get himself killed. And so maybe I can look the other way a bit on the fact that he did run around behind his wife's back. In life, maybe sometimes you meet somebody that you wish you hadn't. Mistakes get made. But still, I mean, in the hands of a lesser actor, I maintain that would have prejudiced me against the character, you know, the uh, infidelity part. So, But it's not so much that I'm passing judgment on other people for that. I just, you know, when, when I look at it too closely, that's the problem. If you look at it superficially, I think he's just very likable and all that. But as I look at it closely, it almost st- creates like a sense of hypocrisy to me that he's, he's so concerned about the members of his gang and all of that, but he's got to be hurting the person who he purportedly loves the most in the world repeatedly with his behavior. So, like I said, I just kind of sense a, a hypocrisy as I look at it more closely. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and the thing is, I mean, I think characters like this sort of rise and fall on their hypocrisy and how well they can contextualize it, internalize it, and eventually overcome it. And this is a guy who is very clearly comfortable living the lie. And I get the idea that there are days when it really bothers him. I also get the the idea that there are days where Terry Leather wakes up in the morning and he does kind of get a kick out of out of his life. And to me, that's really the sickest part of all. Again, I could be interpreting something here that maybe was not intended, but I just I get the idea. He's a maybe a little too into it, you know? Yeah. And to find a character compelling and to root for the character in that movie is not necessarily a saying, you know, I uh, endorse this guy's way of life and attitude and behavior. Oh, no. Saying, as far as far as this movie goes, I found him to be entertaining. Uh, and I found him to be likable within this limited scope. I've met a lot of people who, in a very short period of time, I found to be likable. Uh, and then, you know, when I've been exposed to them more, I find them to be detestable. So, you know, this this is a, a slice of life with uh, this particular character. And he's very likable within this slice of life, if you don't think about it too hard. 
No, I couldn't. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, what else is there about this movie that is worth? I, I, I would want to just talk just briefly about the uh, the actual caper. Uh, it almost seems, and I, I assume this is based on reality, but it almost seems uh, cliche that they rented the store next door to the bank and then tunneled underground to get to it. It almost feels like a sitcom type plot to rob a bank. Yeah, that is a little Seinfeldy, isn't it? So, and, and and yet I assume that's more based on fact than almost anything else in this movie because that's the thing that should be the most uh, public knowledge. Yeah, that is documented. Uh, that apparently is one of the few parts of the movie that we can point to with absolute certainty and say that happened, and more or yeah. less the way that they did it. So you know, it, it's. I, I find that somewhat amusing that the thing I can rely on the most is the most cliche. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, I think it's almost like a, uh, like a, like a kid's game that you'd, you'd play, you know, that you got to do stuff like that. I mean, especially if you grew up and you had seen like the great escape or any movie like that. Uh, you know, I just, I just find it interesting to think that they really did it in real life. Well, and, you know, the thing is, I mean, it actually does kind of raise the question, you know, like, is this art imitating life or vice versa? You know, this is um, – it's one thing to see to, – to read something in a book or see it on TV, but to attempt something like that in real life, it – I mean, I don't know. And this, again, I mean, you said a minute ago, you know, it's – you know, we really do need to watch ourselves – don't get too high and mighty because of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. But it does kind of feed into this prejudice that I think a lot of people have, and I sometimes share myself, that think about the skills that had to be used to perform this robbery. You know, some kind of higher-level carpentry, uh, demolitions, construction. All of these things are very marketable skills that there are, that there's a legitimate market for and you can make an honest living doing these things. And you know what? Oddly enough, probably not have to work as hard. And it, it kind of feeds into this idea that crime doesn't pay. And the reason it doesn't pay, usually, is because the amount of effort that you have to uh, uh, expend compared to the reward that you stand to win over and against the risk that you're taking, crime doesn't pay for those reasons. I mean, it's this movie is kind of, it's probably a notable exception, but there's a reason that crime doesn't pay because it gets to a point where maximum effort for minimal reward against maximum risk, it's hard to get all of those different factors to balance against each other. And if you can, well, I guess they, you know, the the uh, people who actually robbed the bank IRL, they found the the one time when maybe you could find a way to make that work. But it's just that, you know, it's, at the end of the day, you know, watching these people do these things that could earn them a very honest and very comfortable living in real life, and they don't have to break the law. I don't know. It uh, again, I'm not trying to sound high and mighty here, but it crime doesn't pay y'all. No, but it, it it presents the uh, the quandary, I guess, that people have in life of the the quick hit. 
uh, yes, you could do this illegal thing, and if all works out well, you'll just be set for the rest of your life, and you won't ever have to work again. Or you can be a hard, honest worker for the next 25 years and live a comfortable life. Uh, and I think that the temptation of the quick hit is what leads people astray. And I think movies like this often show, uh, you know, and, and they're, they're, this, this movie has both elements of it where you have someone who did succeed in this way. And, you know, Terry actually ended up with a very comfortable life after this was all done by the way it's presented in the movie. But certainly uh, Dave, who was killed and had his flesh seared from his body, uh, you know, he, it wasn't worth it for him. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I think and a lot of times I think in these movies, what they do is they show you diminishing returns too. OK, I'm going to do this job and then I expect to get, you know, a billion dollars. But then, oh, you know, these other people got involved and we had to pay them off. So half the money is gone. And then, you know, in the process of doing the job, we didn't get as much as we thought we could. So another third of the money is gone. And then before you know it, the, you know, you, when you look at it from a risk or reward point of view, was what you risked worth what you ultimately walked away with, even if you got away with it? <laughs> you know, I, I think true. the movies often show us that, you know, the, as, as that, that final, uh, you know, part at the end of the rainbow starts diminishing and diminishing as the movie goes on. Right. And, and that was the other thing about this movie that I really liked is that they didn't make off with some impossible amount of money like Ocean's Eleven. I enjoy that movie. I think it's a it, it's a fun little caper movie. And, uh, you know, I maybe I could criticize Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen, but Ocean's Eleven was that 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 was a fun little movie. But I mean, I'm sorry, you're never going to be able to pull off a a robbery with that scale of reward you know where you truly are set for life and the thing is i mean this kind of ignores the fact that let's face it your victim knows who did it and you're going to spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder waiting for him to to uh get his pound of flesh you know even if that's not a factor you know it's just it's impossible you know that it that it would ever ever turn out that way and uh, what I like about this movie is, yeah, they made off with like a life changing amount of money. And in 1970s dollars, that that probably would have been enough that you can retire on as long as you fairly modestly. But you're not going to be living the lifestyles of the rich and famous on the amount of money they stole out of those safety deposit boxes. I, I don't think you would. I mean, who knows? But I, I just I personally doubt it. And my reason in mentioning that is to say that it. It adds a sort of this air of verisimilitude where you can buy into the idea that against some kind of common sense, obvious reasons, they decide to to execute the robbery. Then against some pretty overwhelming odds, they somehow managed to get away with it. And what they got away with, yeah, it was – it was a good score, but it wasn't the big score. You know, they didn't walk away mm -hmm. with like a hundred million dollars each, you know, some just ridiculous amount of money that no one's going to be able to get. It was, this was my, the retirement fund that I could have saved if I'd done, if I'd lived my life honest. And for some reason, I, I, you know what, now that I think about it, I, I think that is a ma like a major reason why I enjoy this movie as much as I do. 
It's because ultimately was able to settle down with a modest amount of money. It's not a stupid amount. You know, I think that if it was much higher, if he was able to steal much higher than he was shown to have stolen, I think that actually would have been a, a, a breaking point for me. I don't know about you, but me for sure. Yeah, I honestly, I hadn't given a lot of thought to how much he actually got away with. I really kind of just, you know, I, I just go back to the uh, description at the end. It just says, Terry and his family leave England and enjoy a carefree life on a boat in a sunny location. So I really didn't get too much of a feel for exactly how much money he had at the end. Uh, but, you know, in, in his instance, there was a quote unquote happy ending when all was said and done. Uh, you know, not everybody had that happy ending so much. But, you know, the movie is presented as, to a large extent, you know, justice prevailed. Uh, you know, the, the gangster who was holding these pictures did get arrested. The dirty cops got arrested. And all life became good and, you know, roses for everybody afterwards, except for the people who died in the process. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so in effect, it does have kind of a happy ending. Uh, which, you know, you, you wonder if there's any creative license that was taken there as well. And, or or I, if that's, you know, what, what the records would show. I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing a true factual report of what, what they know for a fact occurred in this particular story. I would as well. And the... I guess one of the things, again, uh, you know, just a ring of plausibility that this movie has going for it. <clears throat> one of the um, look, I live in Houston. All right. And what I try to tell people is, guys, Houston is big. All right. This place is effing big, like just really big. It's bigger than the entire state of Connecticut. Just this one city. Right. And one of the things that I always that they've just filled me with curiosity. It's like we know where the high crime areas are, okay? We know where the criminals are hiding. Why won't the police just go in there and just go door to door? Do you have warrants? Do you have warrants? Do you have warrants? Because you got to figure at least half of them probably do. And you can you, you can clean up a lot of stuff just by doing that, you know? And I always wondered, like, why is it that they allow this element to exist in the way that they do. And what I eventually kind of glommed onto after a while was it's not like we civilians are the only ones who know where the criminals are. Everybody knows. The police have basically found a way to confine the criminal element mostly to one part of town. I mean, yeah, you get some spillover once in a while, but in the main, everyone knows which streets to avoid. You know, which neighborhoods you don't want to stop at, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't an accident. You know, these things, it's basically I, I don't want to say there's a stalemate, but there's sort of a there's sort of a balance that police forces. It's not like Houston is all that special when it comes to this. I mean, I'm sure in your city, it's probably a kind of similar story. The cops know where to go. That's not the issue. The issue is. When they know where these people are, they know who these people are for the stuff that really matters, for the stuff that we can't afford to let this go. Now they know who they need to talk to. They know which heads to knock together. 
Whereas if they're constantly arresting these people and constantly sending them upstate, they have no control over this. They have no awareness of this. These people are spread out all over the city. God only knows where to find them. God only knows who they uh, who they are. And that's kind of what we see happening in this movie where the dirty cops, it's kind of known, at least among some people, it's kind of known that they're on the take. Lou Vogel, it's commonly known that he's scumbag par excellence. It's just the police have never really had like a really good reason to go after him. I mean, he he would get up to shenanigans, I'm sure. But up until this moment, they never really had a it's not that they didn't have a case. They just didn't have a reason. And now they have a reason. See, I kind of. Just, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said there, but I think your very, very last statement is where I just detour, detour off it slightly. Okay. Because I think they probably knew that Lou Vogel was dirty, but I think they didn't have a case. We know he's dirty, but we can't prove he's dirty, and if we arrest him, he's going to get off. So why are we going to tie up the time and the effort and the money that it's going to cost to go through all of that just to have him walk away and, and, you know, no, no justice wasn't served anyway until you got now the ledger and you have something concrete that you can come after him with. And now it's okay. Arrest him and take him off. Cause now we have something. Okay. I think these guys, you know, I, I, I knowing that a guy is guilty of something and proving it in the court of law aren't necessarily the same thing. Very true. And as, as, as distasteful as it is to know that there's guys out there that you know are dirty, uh, you can't just lock them away unless you can prove it within the legal system, and that's something that has to be in place in order to protect the people who, you know, you don't, you don't know for a fact they're guilty, but you think they are, and it turns out that they're not. So we have to protect that one. So in order to protect that one, you're going to have to raise the standard. And that's why we have the legal beyond the reasonable doubt standard in criminal trials. To, you know, to to protect people from unfair prosecution. Uh, And, and, you know, know, as we talked about, there's, there's dirty sides to everything. So maybe there's dirty people on the prosecution side of things who, if you make the standard too low, are going to take advantage of that to their own ends to get people convicted of crimes that maybe they're not guilty of. And believe me, this is not something I go through life uh, thinking about, but when you break it down to purely theoretical levels, I think it all makes sense. Now, Sometimes it, in reality, when you see a scumbag go free, it's like, you know, I, I don't care. I, I, it, they got to find some way to get this guy in jail and, you know, do whatever they have to. But Certainly on a theoretical level, I can't argue with the ideology. Okay. Um, and that's, look, perfectly fair, perfectly reasonable. I at least wanted to um, uh, toss all of that out there and uh, basically just, you know, just to just just to make the point, really. So anyway, but that's I, I do I do tend to agree with you that those checks and balances, they they do exist and they do serve a purpose. And there's a good reason for all of that. So, um, Yeah. Good point. So, you know what? 
I, I said uh, early on that I appreciate some of the suggestions you've made to me, and certainly this one has has sparked some conversation that I did not expect to have. Yeah, me too. I wasn't. Uh, I, yeah, I didn't plan this. <laughs> so it's it's, and that's why you know we talked before we started recording about taking notes and and kind of you know how scripted you may be, and you know, just speaking for myself, as as a general rule. Uh, if anything, I take some notes while I'm watching it, just of things that I observe, only because I'm concerned that if I don't have those notes, I may forget to mention a point that I thought was significant while I was watching the movie. But beyond that, I try not to script where we're going to go in the conversation, because I think if I do too much of that, I would avoid some of what I think was quality conversation that we had here. Fair enough. And I agree with you. So... Uh, Ultimately, though, I'm going to ask you, where does this fall on the Jaws scale? Uh, for me, this is pure Jaws 2. This is this is a fun movie. You're not going to come out of it a different person. This is just a fun little caper movie. You know, make sure to bring bring your popcorn with you. And uh, honestly, I think you and I may have elevated this movie to a level of depth and sophistication that I'm not sure is completely warranted here. But nevertheless, you know, these conversations, they, they go where they need to go. But uh, at the end of the day, this is a fun movie. It's something that I enjoy watching, you know, periodically. I, I, like I said, I, I think the number that I gave off before is like I've seen it like five or six times in the last 12 years, which is that's a lot for me, you know. And so mm -hmm. uh, for me, this is a very solid, very comfortable, no brainer Jaws 2 satisfaction virtually guaranteed i can't imagine somebody disliking this movie but uh yeah so how about you what like where does it fall on your scale so ultimately when i look at it uh you know i, I think one of the natural comparisons that we've gone a couple of times is oceans 11 uh it's not nearly as slick as that it's not nearly as uh it's just to use a, another word for slick it's gloss that's glossy this is a darker this is almost like the dark underbelly of Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Uh, and I think because it is based more in reality, uh, you know, intentionally so, I mean, it's based on, on at least to some extent, real events that occurred. Uh, as, as I said earlier, the other movie that I come back to compare it to of recent ilk is Uncut, Uncut Diamonds or Uncut Gems. What was that? I can't even I think it was Uncut Diamonds. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, the, the Adam Sandler serious movie that came out recently I, I i would say in tone it's more similar to that uh and if you've seen that and i think i know a lot of people have seen that in the in, you know in the last few months so if you've seen that and you've liked that i think you'll like this as well uh if you're looking for something light and glossy more like oceans 11 this may not be for you uh because this is you know like i said more of the darker underbelly of it all uh but I did find it to be entertaining, and as 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 we just heard, I think we we may have found a depth that wasn't even intended in certain aspects of this movie, <laughs> uh, which which you know I, I I always enjoy when something makes you think, uh, and I'll I'll give some of the credit for that to uh, the movie, and I'll give some of the credit for that to my co-host who uh, helps me to to go to places on these things. Uh, Overall, I, I, I'm also inclined to give it a Jaws 2. For me personally, I'm thinking it's a little bit of a lower level Jaws 2, but it's still in that Jaws 2 range. 
because I, I think I didn't find it quite as much to be a fun caper movie as you did. As I, I found it to be, again, I, I saw that, that darker underbelly to it, uh, which made it just a little less fun and a little bit more intense. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does, you know, influence my rewatchability to some extent. Uh, I've seen it twice. I saw it when you first suggested it, and then I watched it again uh, when we thought we were going to be able to record again. And some time has passed because it took quite a while for us to actually get to record this episode. Uh, but it was enjoyable. I think the performances are really good. I think the story is well laid out. Uh, I think the direction is pretty solid. Uh, overall, I, I found it to be an enjoyable movie. So, like I said, I'm going to put it at just two as well. Awesome. So I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time. I don't know. You know, I never know when we're going to, when our paths are going to cross again. Hopefully, uh, as always, hopefully it won't be too long. But uh, for all I know, by the next time we speak, you will uh, have a, a, so, someone taking up a lot of your time and may uh, make it more difficult for you to, to get on and, uh, and record. But, uh, you know, we will consider that to be a blessing. Absolutely, yeah. And honestly, what Stacy keeps telling me is, yeah, you know, there's going to be a lot of times when, you know, you're busy. You're going to be amazed how much downtime you really do have, though, you know. So I don't know. I'll I'll believe that when I see it. We're, we're just going to have to we're just going to have to wait and see, I suppose. But uh, either way, it's always a pleasure uh, to come on here, hang out with you, talk with you. Uh, I think I've done not counting this one. I think I've done two other episodes. It's always a blast. And uh, I always appreciate you uh, being willing to extend me an invitation, man. Really. It's always, it's always fun. Thanks for coming on Mm -hmm. again. And thank you everybody for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Another Terry Lever low mileage gem. Got your glad rags sorted out for your wedding tomorrow. Yeah, of course, Terry. New suit, two buttons, nine inch bum flaps. Nice. Ingrid will like that. So, you're getting married tomorrow, Ingrid? I hope so. Go on, get off up. Go make yourself look more beautiful than you already are. If that's possible. Terry, promise you won't get Eddie too legless tonight, will you? At your stag do. Just go around a pub, a couple of pints and a sing song. to me, eh? I've got Jessel's money. The problem is, he's tied up in these cars and you wankers want to trash the lot of them. Mr Jessel doesn't care about your inventory. Mr Jessel wants to know when he's getting paid. Any day, I swear, Perky. Oh, what did you call me? I called you Perky, Perky. Everyone calls you Perky and him Pinky. Pinky and Perky? Yeah. They're fucking cartoon pigs on the telly. What, people call us that behind our backs? Well, they're not going to say it to your face, are they? Well, you just bloody did. Yeah, well, you got me rattled. You're very intimidating. Don't make us come back again. Every customer's a satisfied customer. What are you doing around here, Martine? What are you doing tonight? Tonight? Tonight, said he's snagged her, taking him out for a drink. Why? I've got a proposition for you, Terry. A 
proposition. can you meet me at the players club before you see the boys and i'll fill you in on the details.